0: Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and Thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure, Thou art. I pray that that would be the heartfelt testimony of all of us now and when we're done here, all the more. Oh, be our treasure. Father, show us what it is to love you as a treasure now in these moments. Grant to these students and friends and faculty, administration, hearts to understand what it is to pursue you as the treasure of their lives. And so break the power of money and human praise and sex Fame, greed, and so liberate us to be radically countercultural, ready to lay down our lives for the unreached people in the neighborhoods and peoples among the nations. So come, Father, make us a very peculiar kind of people by changing where our treasure is. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, what I tried to do on Monday was to persuade you from John 11 and John 17 and 2 Corinthians 12 that to be loved by God is not to be made much of, but to have God remove every obstacle of sin and Satan and the world and the flesh so that you enjoy making much of God forever. God doesn't love us by coming to the inner city to distribute mirrors to the children. He comes to lay down his life in the city to take the children on a vacation with him forever. It would not be love to distribute mirrors Nice, clean ones, so that we can really see ourselves and really like what we see. That would not be love. Love would be to go with him, to be with him, to behold him, to play with him and work with him and live with him and create with him and enjoy him forever. He will be the center in his love for us, or it isn't love. And that was the point on Monday. God's best, all-satisfying, most loving gift to you is God. Now, what would it mean then for you to love him? It would mean... Joining him in his zeal to magnify his glory. And I have spent the last 25 or 30 years trying to understand and explain and herald the good news that one essential way for you to join god in magnifying the worth of the glory of god is to be satisfied in god god is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him if he offers himself to you as the highest value and the most precious treasure And the all-satisfying object of your heart, the way to love him is to count him as most valuable, to feel him as most precious, and to be satisfied in your heart with him as your all-satisfying object. That's what love would be. To join the Apostle Paul in saying, I count everything as rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's loving Jesus. Now, here's the crazy, radical, controversial implication of that. It means that for the rest of your life, indeed eternity, your top priority. And full-time vocation is the pursuit of joy in God. So I want to take 30 minutes or so to argue for that. Because it seems like wherever I go and argue, your main business in life is to be happy in God, and it is a very dangerous quest and will probably cost you your life, but don't shrink back from this radical pursuit of your maximum and everlasting happiness. Don't let anybody dissuade you that this is somehow unbiblical or not God-honoring, If you try to abandon your pursuit of maximum and everlasting happiness in God, you can neither be virtuous nor worship. Now, first let's start with Philippians chapter 1 to lay the groundwork for the structure of this thought. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20. Here's Paul in prison in Rome, and what he does in these few verses, 20 and 21 especially, and then in verse 23 as well, is give me a structure of thought by which I understand how he believes he magnifies God or Christ, because I'm arguing If you want to join God in this omnipotent passion to magnify his glory, how do you do it? And I'm arguing, be satisfied in him. Pursue joy in him above all other joys. Count every other joy as sheer refuse compared with the joy there is to be had in God and go for broke, lose everything if you have to in order to maximize your everlasting joy in God. And that's the way Christ will be made much of. That's my argument, and I get it from this text. So if you wonder whether that's biblical, I'm going to try to show you now in these two verses that it is. Verse 20, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, that's the negative side, now here's the positive, I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be, now your version may say honored, magnified, glorified, whatever the word is in your English Bible there, they all mean the same thing basically. My eager expectation and desire is they'll not be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be magnified, honored, made much of in my body, whether by life or by death. Now just stop there and make sure you get that really clear. Because I'm, I'm asking you to love God by joining God in his passion to make much of God, especially God in Christ. Now, here's Paul saying that's what he wants to do. He's saying, I want my body, my bodily existence, I want it to count to make much of Christ. I want Christ to look good on me. I want to live to make him look really good. And I want to die that way. And he says, I know it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. Christ is going to be honored in my body. Whether I live, he's going to be honored in my body. Whether I die, and now the next verse comes in with a ground clause explaining how it is that Christ will be made much of in his living and in his dying. So let's read verse 21 now. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now notice that the word live in verse 21 corresponds with life in verse 20 and die in verse 21 corresponds with death in verse 20. So he's explaining the end of verse 20. Verse 20 says, I want Christ to be honored in my body whether by life or by death and then he picks up on those two things, life and death, and he explains how that's going to be. If I live... Christ will be magnified by being my life. And if I die, Christ will be magnified by being my gain. Now think about that. Let's just take the death pair there. Read it like this. My eager expectation and hope... That I might not be ashamed, but now as always, Christ might be made much of, made to look really good, honored, magnified in my dying, because to me, to die is gain. You get it? Do you see it? How do you make Christ look really good as you die? Count it gain to die. There's a missing premise in the argument, isn't there? I mean, you're supplying it because you're biblical people, but it's missing, and it's stated in verse 23. Let's get that premise in here so that the logic is complete. Verse 23, I am hard pressed between the two. That is, living or dying, I don't know which I'm going to do. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. There's the missing premise. Now let's add it how am I going to make much of you and cause you to look really good in my dying by counting my dying as gain because in dying I get you as gain. Which I paraphrase like this. Christ is most magnified in Paul's dying when Paul is most satisfied in Christ in his dying. And that's my whole theology. If you don't see it there, I doubt if I can show it to you. That the way you make Christ look really good is by being so satisfied with Christ that when you die and you lose everything on this planet except Christ, it's gained. Your friends are gone. Your dreams of a career and marriage and grandchildren, they're gone. And all you have to look forward to is Jesus. At that moment, how do you make him look really good to your friends? By saying, Cain. Farewell, friends. Friends. Farewell, Biola. Farewell, food. Farewell, dreams of marriage. Jesus, gain. That's the way you make him look good. Now, if that's the way Christ is magnified, what is your life's vocation? And my answer is, pursue Complete and full gain in Christ, satisfaction in Christ, joy in Christ. Spend your whole life reading things, studying things, thinking about things, avoiding things, doing things, embracing things, all of which will cultivate a deeper, deeper longing and delight in Christ. Be a hedonist Be a radical Christian hedonist. Don't settle for the two bit, short term, unguaranteed interest rates of this world. Don't be a fool. All right. Now, what I want to do is test biblically the implication that I'm drawing out because there's so many people that hear this and they just shake their head and say oh I just can't be you you can't be right to tell us that we should really devote all of our energy morning noon and night to pursuing our joy that is so foreign to the christianity that I inherited that it's just got to have a flaw in it somewhere so let's take the last minutes And I'm going to give you a marathon, eight arguments from the Bible. Actually, I'll probably run out of time and leave it off at five or six or seven, but we'll just go as fast and as far as we can get. I want to give you biblical reasons for why when you leave this chapel, you should spend the rest of your eternity seeking to maximize your joy in God. Of course, some people are going to walk out of here and distort what I said and say, I said you're supposed to be a hedonist and go get as much happiness from basketball and, and, and houses and cars and sex and whatever. Of course, there will be people who say that. You, you try to say something in public that's true and exciting and wonderful and somebody will always go out and say you said the opposite. So just know I'm calling martyrs here. I'm recruiting martyrs here who say with the Apostle Paul, I'll let America go. I'll let marriage go. I'll let houses go. I'll let the next degree go. I'm going to lay down my life in, you name the hard place, wherever God's calling you. Because that's where I'm going to find Jesus. That's where I'm going to enjoy the sweetest fellowship. I remember John Patton, the missionary to Tana in the New Hebrides, he, about 100 years ago, was being driven off the island by about 1,400 vicious people who would come to hate him. And one man would help him escape. And He said, you've got to climb up in this tree here, and I'll lead them down that path. And when they're gone, you go over there to the harbor and find a little boat and go to the next island. And he said, sitting in that tree with 1,500 machete-carrying enemies underneath me, I enjoyed The sweetest fulfillment of the promise. I will be with you to the end of the age that I have never known. And I would happily spend many sleepless nights in that tree on Tana to know the sweetness of that fellowship with my Lord Jesus. That's what you'll find in the hard place when you lay down the good life in America. Argument number one. You are commanded by the Bible to pursue your joy. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. It doesn't say serve the Lord with sadness. It says serve the Lord with gladness. That's a command. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 32, or 32, verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. This is a command like, Thou shalt not commit adultery or flee fornication. It is a command, Pursue joy. That is not icing on the cake of Christianity. That is Christianity. Get after it. Go after it. Grind your teeth. Get a gun. Shoot it down. Bag it. Get it whatever it costs. Number two, argument number two. We are threatened terrible things if we will not be happy. Deuteronomy 28, 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you will serve your enemies. I tell you, you should tremble. You should tremble if you've been taught joy is optional. Because this text says, If you do not serve the Lord your God with joy, you will serve your enemies. That's God saying, you think I'm a slave master? You think I'm the kind of God who can only be served with teeth-gritting duty Out of here if you want to discover what that kind of a master is. we got plenty of those in the world. Go serve them if you want to. That's not me. I'm your father. I adopt children. I don't hire slaves. Love me. Enjoy me. Delight in me. Don't be begrudging towards me. I have everything for you. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. Argument number three. The very nature of faith teaches that you should pursue satisfaction in God. What is faith anyway? Saving faith. John six thirty five. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes, there's the word, believes in me will never thirst. I think the parallelism of that verse, I'm the bread. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who, parallel, Believes in me will never thirst, means believing in Jesus is a coming to him so as to be satisfied in him. Eating the bread, drinking the water, saying, Ah, I have found the end of my journey. That's faith. We have so decisionalized and mechanized and volunteerized faith that I think we can scarcely grasp how affectional the biblical notion of saving faith is. There is a feeling component to faith. It's not fact faith feeling with feeling as the optional caboose on the end of the train. That's not the way it is. There is in saving faith itself a coming so as to rest, a coming so as to taste, a coming so as to eat, a coming so as to enjoy, a coming so as to be satisfied. You don't have saving faith if Jesus is a burden to you. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. Lay it down. Or you don't know me Saving faith involves coming to Jesus for satisfaction. We say at our church right now, because everybody in my neighborhood is saved, drunks are saved, prostitutes are saved, everybody's saved. It's a burned-over district because there's a Bible college in the area, and so everybody's been witnessed to a hundred times. And, um, and so it doesn't do any good to say uh, you trust in Jesus as your Lord or you trust in Jesus as your Savior. Everybody does. So you've got to find new language when you're talking to these folks. And one of the one of the languages that we use now is in order to trust Jesus savingly, you must embrace him as savior, a sin forgiver, Lord, one who guides your life and treasure. Do you trust him as your treasure? That's saving faith. Number four, argument number four. The nature of evil teaches the pursuit of satisfaction in God. What is evil? I wonder how you would define evil in view of the last several sessions together. Here's Jeremiah's definition of evil this is God talking. Be appalled, O heavens, be shocked, shudder, be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two great evils. So what would that be? My people have committed two great evils. Here they are. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn out for themselves cisterns, Broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's evil. There's evil. What is evil? Evil is being offered by Almighty God an everlasting fountain that satisfies the soul forever and ever and ever and sniffing at it and saying no thank you and turning to the world and carving out cisterns of our own making broken cisterns that can hold no water putting our mouth to the dirt and sucking on it our heart as we can and saying oh satisfy me world and persuading ourselves that it tastes good. That's evil. Evil is the abandonment of hedonism. For mud pies in the slums, as C.S. Lewis says, when we're offered a holiday at the sea. All day long, Every day on television, billboards, magazines, newspapers, radio ads, the world devotes its most creative energies to making the poison look good. Even the innocent poison. Anything to keep you turning away from the fountain. So if you want to know what evil is in the Bible... Evil is turning away from joy and substituting broken cisterns. Number five, the nature of discipleship demands that you pursue satisfaction in God. I choose one sample text, Matthew 13, 44. This is probably the verse that 25, maybe 30 years ago now, arrested me and stopped me in my tracks and began to make me a Christian hedonist. It's a, it's a one-verse parable, and it goes like this, Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And from joy... Now, there's the word that we so often read over so quickly. Watch it. And from joy he goes and sells everything he has, and buys that field. Wedding ring? Sell it. Heirloom grandfather's clock in the living room? Sell it. Nice big house on the hills? Sell it. New car, new motorcycle, new computer? Sell them. Why? To get the field where the treasure is, which is the kingdom of Christ the rule of Christ, the presence and the power of the beauty of almighty Christ is in this field. Do whatever you have to do to get it. And notice the key words, from joy he sold everything he had. Duty, Let's see. <laughs> it's like putting a big hot fudge sundae in front of your teenager and saying, it is your duty to eat this. Eat it. Well, yes, yes, okay. When he, when he sells everything he has to buy this field, it says here, lest we miss it, from joy over it, he sells everything he has. Which is why the missionaries write the best biographies. And at the end of their lives, I get this quote from David Livingston and from Hudson Taylor, they both, whether independently, I don't know, said explicitly, one in a lecture to Cambridge students and one in Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret, they both said, at the end of their lives, having lost health, having lost spouses, having lost a life of ease in England, I never made a sacrifice. What can that possibly mean? It means, for joy they sold everything they had to have that field. If you get Jesus and lose everything, you gain. You're rich. Which is why Jesus got bent out of shape about Peter. When Peter said, after Jesus sent the rich man away and said, it's hard for the rich to get into the kingdom, Peter said, Well, Lord, what about us? We've left everything and followed you. (laughs) You remember what Jesus said to him? He was really quite upset at this fellow at this point, I think. He said, disbelief on his face. Peter, nobody has left houses or lands or mother or father or children or homes for my sake, who will not be- get back a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come, eternal life? What do you mean you've left everything and followed me? Oh, poor me. What about me? What kind of rewards am I going to get? Peter, I am God Almighty. Almighty. You get me. You expect me to feel sorry for you. That's the way we are. Because we're so afraid to pursue our maximum joy in the treasure of God Almighty. Argument number six. Implicit in number five. If you say to Well, wait a minute, don't you believe in self-denial? This does not sound like self-denial. Well, then you're not listening. You're just not listening. You're just not listening, if that's what you're feeling right now. Because everything I have said so far is, sell it all. I count everything as rubbish for the surpassing value of having Christ Jesus, my Lord. That is... I almost said total, and I don't mean total. That is... Radical and real self-denial, but not ultimate self-denial. Jesus never called you to ultimate self-denial. He called you to ultimate satisfaction. And to deny yourself tin that you may have gold. To deny yourself some brackish water that you may have a lake in the mountains. To deny yourself fickle friends that you may have one who sticks closer than a brother. Yeah, there's such a thing as self-denial in the world. Deny yourself dung. That's what Paul said, I counted all his dung and refuse to have Christ. That doesn't exactly sound like self-denial, does it? No, because when Christ is your treasure, he's magnified and all those other things are made to look like what they really are, namely small and insignificant by comparison. So yes, I do believe in self-denial. Deny yourself everything it takes in order to be maximally happy in God. Number seven, argument number seven. I think we're going to make it. The very nature of love demands that you pursue your joy. I mean love to people. It's very hard for people to grasp. You see, oh, here you are telling all these students now to go out and pursue their joy. How in the world are they going to be loving people if all they're ever thinking about is their joy? Well, that's not what they're thinking about. They're thinking about the one who gives them joy. And they're finding complete satisfaction in Him. And when they find complete satisfaction in Him, they can let goods and kindred go and spend their lives for other people rather than trying to protect themselves with comforts and securities and luxuries all their life, which makes them indifferent to the needs of other people, especially those in the hardest places of the world. Acts chapter 20, verse 34 34 and 35. Paul says... In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember, remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Why is it more blessed to give than to receive? Because it shows where your heart is. If you are full and grace is flowing down and you are filling up, then the giving of your life is the spillover of joy in God and the pursuit of drawing others into the experience of that joy. And when you're spilling over and they're filling up, it doesn't get any better, even if it costs you your life. And it may cost you your life. If you want to love other people... You must pursue joy in God, and you must pursue their joy in God. And you can't pursue their joy in God if you don't have joy in God. You're an absolute hypocrite if you think you can pursue others' joy in God, and you don't have joy in God. And if you try to love people without pursuing their joy in God, you're a cruel person putting Band-Aids on cancer. If you do not give people the best gift and only give them little teeny gifts with no desire that they get the best gift and do everything that you can through the small gifts, get them to the big gift, you don't love them. And so if you're going to sell them, crash word, on the infinite value of God, you got to feel it. Which means for love's sake, you got to pursue it. And if you don't feel it right now, you've got to cultivate it. One last argument. This is number eight. That one was on love. This is on the glory of God. And it's where I started with Philippians 1, 21. And I'll use a story that I I love to tell. I've told it a hundred times. Some of you have heard it. And I don't mind telling it again because it's my favorite story. And it makes all kinds of lights go on for me. I hope it will for you. My argument here at the end is your pursuit of your joy We'll glorify God most. Been married to Noel 34 years almost this December. So I come with 34 roses behind my back on December 21st and ring the doorbell, which I don't usually do. Ding dong. She comes to the door, looks at me like, why did you ring the doorbell? And, and I, I pull the roses out and say, happy anniversary, Noel. And she says, wow, you're beautiful, Johnny. Why did you? And I say, it's my duty. I'm a good husband. I've read the book. This is what you're supposed to do. And every time I tell this story, people laugh at duty. Why do you laugh at duty? Duty's a good thing, I thought. Why do you laugh at duty? I've never told that story where people don't laugh at duty. What's wrong with duty at that moment? I'll tell you what's wrong with it. It does not honor her. It might honor me. I got the willpower to do duty, I can do husband things. So recognize my qualities. It might, it might accomplish my honor. That doesn't honor her. What? Rerun the tape. Let's just do it right this time. Ding dong. Open door. Happy anniversary, Noel. Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? Because nothing makes me happier than to buy you gifts. And in fact, why don't you go change clothes because I've arranged for a babysitter because we're going to spend the evening together because there's nothing I'd rather do tonight than be you. Not in a million years would she say, nothing you'd rather do tonight. All you ever think about is you, you, you. Hmm. I think you're getting it. Your laughter betrays, you know there's a problem with duty, and you know there's something absolutely right about hedonism. Why is it so right for me to say to her, there's nothing I'd rather do than spend the night with you? Because it honors her so much. It makes her square at the center of my affections. Yes, I'm pursuing my joy, big time. But it honors her. It honors her. I have chosen you. You are the satisfaction of my life. Now, just bump that up about a million times. When God asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? Don't say, I did my duty. Say, there is no place I would rather spend eternity. And I have trusted in your Son who paid the debt that I might enjoy an eternity with you. And I have turned away from every other value I've turned away from every other possible solution to my problems and I want to be with you forever in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, now as we go, I, to the the airport, back to my ministry in Minneapolis and these students and friends scatter all over this campus and across Southern California, please, Father, take words And make them reality. Make yourself, Jesus Christ, the treasure of our lives. So that we find full satisfaction in you. So that you are fully glorified in us. And so that we are freed now to love each other. And to love the hard people and the hard places. Lord, let the ripple effect go for the sake of the nations, for the sake of the churches, for the sake of marriages and families and... Dorm rooms and friendships and for the sake of those in this room who have serious diseases and are wrestling with life and death issues, oh, be their portion, I pray. May we all be able to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen.